Hey guys, Tim Glom here for Cheetah Digital. I'm joined as always with my co-host Richard Jones, our CMO. But today we have him back. The chairman is back from the safety of his own bunker. We're all at home during COVID. And uh, Scott, I can tell you haven't gotten your hair cut in a little bit. That's why we wear hats, but uh, it's Scott McNeely. We have him back, the uh, former founder, uh, co-founder and CEO of Sun Microsystems. Scott, how are you doing in all of this madness? Oh, I'm uh, living the dream. I thought I was gonna be an empty nester. All the kids came back from college. <laughs> tried actually we went empty nester and we've been uh, hiding out and trying to behave and uh trying not to watch too much uh news on tv <laughs> crazy times that's for sure richard how are you doing very good sir very good and uh i'm uh, looking forward to today's show quite a bit because um i actually was a was a uh historian by uh by education and um you know we're really interested to dig in this week to some lessons from history about how senior executives actually manage through uh, a crisis. Um, you know, the the last you know few shows we've had a number of different CXOs in from a whole variety of different uh, industries. Some of which have been very very impacted by um, the COVID nineteen lockdown, such as you know, restaurants, uh, hospitality, etc. Um, and uh, we all lived, um, being the age we are, through the dot com. Uh, bubble and crash. So um, we're very lucky enough to have uh, Scott here, who's at the helm of one of the biggest technology companies of its day uh, during that period. Uh, and so I wanted to dig into some lessons learned. Yeah, what kind of cycles, uh, you know, Scott, you've seen obviously a lot of different cycles. You know, why don't you give us a little bit of a quick history for, for those that that weren't there for this, for, for the dot-com crash and some of the other uh, things that the world has gone through. You give us a little context. Well, being, being the resident old guy here on the show, I have seen a lot of, of cycles. And I would often talk when I was leading Sun that, you know, things are going to change above, below, and around you faster than any place you've ever been. And the cycles were going to come, the uh, frequency was going to be higher, and, and the amplitude was going to get higher. And I used to say, you know, at some point our economic uh, future is going to look like a Bill Clinton lie detector test. And that would always get some people to laugh and other people to throw things at me, but I'm, I'm okay with either. But uh, if you go back, I mean, we had gas shortages during the Carter area, and we had, before that, we had the Vietnam War, and we had uh, a whole bunch of, of we, had, we had a bigger pandemic maybe than uh, uh, what we have today with the Hong Kong flu. It's just we didn't do anything. We just kind of fought through it. Uh, we've had the dot-com bubble, COVID, um, infodemic, panic-demic, and uh, eventually a riot-demic have created uh, an, an economic shock that I was glad I wasn't in the pinata during, because it's uh, this one was uh, very, very large and global. And in fact, I think we're gonna be dealing with the effects for a long, long period of time. The, the rebound here will be quick, in areas, but in other places, it's just, it's gonna be awful. And I think uh, the global impact of this thing is, is quite stunning. So let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the dot-com uh, boom uh, before we get to the to the crash, because many many uh, many of the, the older listeners will, will have experienced it, will have lived through it, will have understood what we're talking about. But there will be some younger uh, listeners that um, don't know really much, too much about the dot-com boom and bubbles. So. Give us a little bit of an insight 
into the boom years, the dot-com boom leading up to, to the crash. Tell us, how, how was that for Sam? How did you, uh, how did you experience that enormous growth uh, in kind of internet uh, companies and, and startups? Well, you have to go back to the beginning of the 1980s. 1986 is when we formed, uh, 1982 is when we formed Sun Microsystems. And that's when Apple was just starting and, and uh, the PC was happening and uh, Wintel was happening. And that was a big new change. All of a sudden, you had answering machines, you had cell phones, you had email, you had uh, web pages, and all of the stuff that all of the digital natives, the, the millies or the millennials, as they're called, uh, they just thought it was always like that, but it wasn't. And, and uh, the automation, the disintermediation created an enormous thing. Then we had Y2K come along, and uh, you know there was so much going on that... Uh, changed just how we did things, caused enormous uh, relocations of uh, manpower, of asset investments. And so people got all caught up in it. And uh, it, it really impacted some companies. In the same way, there's not been a, a, an economic dislocation for Zoom or for TikTok or for Netflix or for the biggest beneficiary of pan, pandemic, panic-demic, and um, uh, riot-demic, the biggest beneficiary of all has been Amazon because they're just taking out retail. So in, in that going back to the dot-com era, the big run-up was for a few companies, and I think Sun was probably uh, as impacted by it as anybody we became the equivalent of the COVID era toilet paper. People started hoarding our equipment and they were buying it like crazy. And our executives were getting paid uh, on stock options and bonuses making, loved it and were happy to stuff the channel who was worried about, um, you know, being able to keep their customers, and customers were hoarding Sun servers and workstations. Like you can't believe, like building warehouses and sticking computers unboxed in their warehouses. And then when, you know, the bubble burst and everybody said, oh, I got plenty, you know, then people started, we call it a gray market, the gray market sales of uh, these hoarded servers just sent our, our revenue just down like this. So we went up like this, and the big bad news was we hired people, Bozo Invasion, signed up a whole bunch of leases. We even leased a building in San Francisco that never got built. And we just had to pay for it. It never got built after the crash. And uh, we had all of these stock price expectations that had gone through the roof. We were selling at 10 times revenues on the stock market. Let me tell you for a hardware company to get a 10 year payback on that. I'm famous for this analysis. I need to get a hundred percent of my revenue. I have to, uh, to turn into cash. And to do that, I need to have zero cost of goods sold, which is really hard for a computer company for 10 years. Then I have to have zero expenses and zero R and D, which is really hard when you know you have one and a half year product cycles, but then you, you better have something new because it's gone. And then I have to pay zero taxes, which is highly illegal. And then I have to get the board to pay a hundred percent of that revenue that it turned into cash into dividends. And then those dividends have to be zero tax 
to the receiver of those dividends for a 10-year payback on buying my stock at 10 times revenues. Do that math. Go back, gang, and replay what, what I just said. The concept of me being able to maintain tax-free all the way to the shareholder is really hard. And so there was no question. In fact, I remember one of the problems I had was I had a senior executive who was calling back door to the street to the key analyst and telling her that we're going to have a killer quarter next quarter and pumping the stock up even more. Meanwhile, I'm going, wait a second, guys, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. And so, by the way, for all of you who are in the uh, public company arena, you will watch and see morale tracked. We did it at Sun. It tracks perfectly, 100% correlation, stock price and morale. And so morale was off the charts, but then when the crash came, oh my gosh, now you're dealing with a bunch of people who are you know, wanting to jump off of buildings. And you know, it's the same company, the same opportunity. So where did the stock price sort of get to the, in its, in its uh, pre-bubble height? 10 times revenues. And I, I just, and it was, we were a top 20, top 10 valued company in the world at one point. And when we're a hardware company, we have to reinvent ourselves every year and a half. We have to pay cost of goods sold. It's not like the, you know, the, the dot-com bubble we have now with, you know, they're, they're shipping uh, electrons around. We had to ship atoms. It's very different. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you talked about the emotion there. How do you handle, you know, there's a lot of CEOs out there right now dealing with this emotional roller coaster. Um, how do you deal with that? You know, you, you talk about around the stock price when it goes down. How do you deal with that emotional roller coaster? It's hard. When you're doing really, really well, the hardest part, I would get up in the morning and I'd practice saying no in the mirror. And I would, every way, no way, that's not going to happen. NFW, get out of my office. I, whatever, I would just practice so I could be in the office just saying no, no, no to things. And I remember during the, the run-up, my CFO and I were screaming, stop, slow down. And it was impossible because I always had the, um, you know, to ask is to seek denial as a way to let people feel enabled. But when we tried to put the brakes on, I call a staff meeting. Everybody, it took them 20 minutes to sit down because they're all walking around the table to congratulate. Hey, I booked this order. Look, we just launched a record. This, and they're all bragging and feeling invincible. And the CFO and I are going, Oh my God, sit down, everybody. We got to And then, boom, the thing drops. All of a sudden, now people walk in. 8 a.m., they were at the table, workstations open, ready to go, and looking at me, going, What are we going to do? Tell us what to do. I'm thinking, my goodness, now you listen to me when things are spiraling out of control. But I actually enjoyed that because getting your executives, they just thought they were bulletproof and invincible and superstars when things were going crazy like that. And then when things go down, all of a sudden they get humbled a lot. And by the way, um, you have to, I'll tell you what I did do that I always had this rule of 11. I think Richard, you remember when uh, uh, we were we were growing the company, and I was talking to you about this. The flatter you can make your chart, the more control you have over the team. And uh, during the bubble, I I thought, well, I'm going to break that rule a little bit because I'm going to spend more time talking to the outside world and and doing strategic partnerships and all the rest of it. 
and I lost control of the operational aspects. And right after I just kind of took out the, I went from rule of five or so to rule of 11 or 12. I think I actually got to 13 or 14 and I got everybody at the table and told them what we're going to do and how we're going to go do it and got much more control over the organization. And we fought our way back to profitability. And um, when, when I stepped down as CEO, finally, I mean, we, we, we had 7.4 billion in cash. We were gaining share. We had 48% gross margins and we we're, you know, generating cash, uh, which is you know a, a good thing. So, uh, but it's hard, but I enjoy, I didn't, I enjoyed working and, I think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to change things. I got to change the way we did things. And, uh, you know, the morale got way better because you, you felt better. You know, it's sort of like Trump's going to have improving economic scenarios to announce every month because we are going to be adding people. And, you know, it, 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 they'll forget that we still aren't to where we were before all of this hit. So it's, it's what have I done for you in the last week kind of thing. Yep. So, so talk to us a little bit about that kind of moment of the, the the crash itself. I mean, was there was there a particular you know moment you, you remember where you were, where that you know that you you saw the crash happen for the first time, realized the company was in was in trouble. Was there was there a specific moment you can remember? It you know it kind of you kind of like when you go over a roller coaster, all of a sudden you start to get weightless and it starts to rise, and then. You know, you don't really see anything because you're on the back of the caboose. The the CEO's always on the back of the, the roller coaster. And other people are already going over and starting to scream and you hear all this noise and then all of a sudden you don't. And then you look down and you go, oh my gosh, where's the bottom? And that's really what you're worried about is where's the bottom? How much do you have to do? You have very, very tough decisions to make with senior executives who you worked with forever and you say, eh, it ain't working. Uh, or, you know, we got to, you know, re reorganize and, you know, that sort of thing. But the hardest part is, uh, and this is really the hard part of, and, and, and the advice I would give people is, I think of the management as bark and limbs and um, trunk, that sort of thing. And I think of the individual contributors as the leaves out on the tree. And they're the photosynthetic. That's where all the work happens. That's where all the stuff gets done. And so when you say, all right, we got to cut 20%, you go tell all the trunk and bark and, and branches to go cut 20%. So they go out and they trim 20% of the leaves, <laughs> right? And pretty soon after a couple of rounds, all the leaves are gone and you got this thing in the middle of summer that, is getting all this sunlight and there's no there's no photosynthetic capability of people that are the individual contributors are the ones that do all of the work and you got to remember that and so i have another rule that rule of 11 basically says there should only be nine percent managers and you just do the math it's simple and so as you're doing layoffs you have to take out more managers or turn managers back into individual contributors if they don't want to leave and, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a CEO-itis or manager-itis that you get where people just, oh, I'm above doing work. Well, you're, you're out of here then. Yeah. And, um, and, and away you go. But if you don't do that, I think that is the biggest mistake people make is having more than 9% managers. And I always ask my folks when I get my all, all my management, I say, how many of you have your boss in your building? Because we're a big company. And, you know, like, 
or how many of you don't work in the same building as your boss? And, and about most of the most of the room would raise their hand. Um, and I said, how many of you are upset about that? All the hands went down. Nobody, nobody minded that their boss wasn't in their building. In fact, most almost any good hardworking leader doesn't want their boss in the in, in their because you either you're led or you're managed. And I always ask them, how many of you like to be managed versus led? How many want to be managed? No hands go up. How many want to be led? Everybody wants to be led, and that's why you want. I think that's the most critical issue and every HR person who did Taylor studies and, and, you know, went to, uh, you know, I was taught by a tenured professor who's never had a real job in the world. So always talks about the proper number is six or seven direct reports. No, 11 plus get to 15. That's fine. And, uh, all good things happen when you have a super flat word chart, you have more percentage of photosynthetic workers, you people feet on the ground. You can, I also say that there is about 80% transmission from one management layer to the next. Because if I say something to my staff, my staff gets about 80% of that. Then they go to their staff meeting and say, here's what Scott said, and about 80% of those got. If you have five levels in your chart, do the math, uh, 0.8 to the fifth power. Just, just do that on your calculator, and you'll find it's a stunningly and scare, scary small percentage of what I said is gotten down to the lower levels. So then the last piece I would say for managing during this downturn is you gotta get out of the back car, the roller coaster and get up into the front and go see the photosynthetic leaves and, and talk to them, tell them what you're doing, why you're doing it, that you're getting rid of bark and branches because they hate all those folks giving them busy work when they wanna get their job done and, and you gotta go connect with so I used to do, I had a radio show just like this that I would do that didn't have video. We just did it audio on our thin clients and, and uh, people would listen to my radio show once a week. And I'd talk to them, I'd pick up the phone. We actually had phones back then. And I'd call people randomly and people love that little segment. I go, hi, this is Scott. Scott who? You know, the CEO, Scott McNeely. Yeah, right. Who are you? And, we, and then I'd ask him, hey, how you doing? How's your boss doing? Is he doing? I, I would have absolute just hoot talking to these guys. And then they love their five minutes. of. And I'd say the most important question in management for any leader to do is I would say, George, Mary, Fred, what should we be doing that we're not doing? And I would ask that very sincerely. And I'd listen and I'd try and explore and understand. And I think the one most empowering uh, uh, and loyalty building question, because even if you don't take their advice, they got to say it, is to ask people, what should we be doing that we're not doing? And when you're way back there in the back of the roller coaster, and everybody's screaming up front and you know you can't see ahead of you, all the rest of it. And the CEO is always the last to know where the turn is coming. If you get to the people who are at the front of the front of the train there, they're gonna know way more that are on the ground doing the real work. And you gotta be comfortable asking the question. That nobody ever got mad at me for being not decisive. I was decisive. It was participative. It was not consensus. And good leaders will understand you don't make a non-consensus decision without having done a participative conversation. Everybody can't agree, but here's how we're gonna do it, here's how we're gonna solve the problem. So as, as you were kind of going through and adjusting um, 
you know, sun to the new realities of the dot-com crash in terms of making it the, the cost-cutting that needed to be made. Given that you were, um, you know, wisely, I believe, going after the, the branches and, and not the leaves, did, did it uh, foster an era of kind of, you know, upward mobility with the younger staff, innovation, et cetera, because you're essentially flattening the organization? Every, every dislocation is an opportunity. And if you can react to that dislocation faster than anybody else, then it's good. Uh, and, and, you know, what IBM had a hard time changing as quickly as we did, and we were able to gain share. But the, but the thing about change, and, and that's all it is, it's just change. It's change in environment and data and, you know, opportunity and different assets and resources change in terms of their availability. So I struggled with this change thing for a few years in my career early on, and I thought, why do people hate change? I loved, I was in eight schools by eighth grade. So I never, I just, you know, change. Yeah. I get bored. My wife always says, you stay in one place for two weeks and you want to get an airplane. Yeah. I, I like to go and see and deal with change. That's just how I am. But I thought, why don't people like change? And it, there's a very, very good reason. And once you understand this and accept it and realize that it's part of human nature, they're not being stubborn. They like to go home and tell their family, I killed it at work today. I got a personal best. I transacted this much or I did that much or I got that much. And by the way, I did it perfectly. I made no mistakes today. Nobody called. Nobody hollered at me. I did a good job. I earned my salary. I feel great self-esteem because I did a great job. And so then the people who are, go you know, six months without making any mistakes and doing what do we do? We take them and put them in a new unknown job that we want to create and start something new or fix something that's incredibly broken or whatever. And we get them in a brand new world. And all of a sudden they're failing. People are calling, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. And you're not making the numbers because they're impossible to make. And people are around them are all grumbling, not knowing, what do I do? What do I do? They're coming to you and you want to go home and kick the dog. Because now all of a sudden you're not getting a personal best. You're not acing it every day. And it's hard. And so when you put somebody in a position of having to change and do something different, you need to explain and say, hey, this is not gonna be fun. This is gonna be hard. You're gonna fall down, you're gonna skin your knee, people are gonna holler at you, but I need you to get this done. This is critical for, and I got your back. And you know, I know you can figure it out. And I know you will figure it out. And I'm here, you come tell me what you need to get your job done. And you send somebody off like that um, knowing and understanding that um, you, they know that you know it's going to be tough, then uh, th they'll run through walls for you, and, and you can change. And all you, it's like I don't got to outrun the bear; I got to outrun all the other hikers. And as long as you can change quicker than the, uh, you know, why are you putting on the running shoes? Because I just got to outrun you. I don't got to outrun the bear. And so. You know, it, it's the folks who don't take the time to put on the tennis shoes and explain what we're doing here that uh, um, don't react to the new model. It, you can't let people, that's the other thing, leaders have to attenuate, not amplify the disasters that are happening. And uh, that, that's always, I mean, I, you've got to be a great actor as a leader. And I mean a sincerely great actor. Because when they come in and say, the building's on fire, sky is falling, 
you know, earthquake is going to happen. We, we see the hurricane coming and they, they walk in and they, I, I got terrified. Oh my God, what are we going to do? But I had to look at them and calmly say, yeah, I hear you. And, and I could not let the terror show in my eyes. And then I'd have to diffuse it with a little bit of humor and say, all right, what do you think we ought to do? I'm thinking this, that, and that. What do you think? All right, go get that done and we'll, we'll get through this. And you send them out, not, not a amplified terror, but attenuated terror and, uh, and, give, and, and get them to focus that adrenaline on something that's positive and uh and it's telling them, listen i got so-and-so working on this so-and-so you go get that done we'll be fine and and then you go home and you go out in the backyard and you scream holy criminy what are, how are we gonna get through this but you can't let anybody see that that's the hard part of being a leader do, do you think um because this is global i mean what's happening right now is is global i've never seen it in my lifetime i'm 46 um do you think it makes it a little easier on leaders to know, okay, not just our competition, but everybody's in the same boat here. Like we're all dealing with this on a massive global scale. Does that, does that bring some comfort to, to leadership to say, Hey, let's watch what everyone else is doing. You know, we're not alone in this um, or, or no. Yeah. You know, I think it really depends. Like I said, um, uh, Amazon is, like buying up, I have a good buddy who runs uh, warehouses and uh, he said Amazon came in and asked him, I want to see, uh, a I want to see every bit of warehouse space you have available in your entire global portfolio and give me a quote on it. So these two companies are in a first responder kind of mode, but what it's forcing is 10 years of gradual relocation to you know, away from malls and away from retail shops and certainly the riot-demic. I mean, if, if you were running Amazon and you could ask for two great things, one would be a pandemic and another would be a riot-demic in terms of getting people to shop online versus, and if you've actually seen the numbers, it is a hockey stick. I mean, the, the inflection point that this all created. So some people are really facing that and you know there's a whole bunch of essential services i think what this all taught me is from an investor perspective and from an investment perspective i want to be in essential businesses we didn't really talk about essential until about three months ago uh, when the government decided in their infinite wisdom what was essential or not but i think the mark you know the, the consumer decided toilet paper was essential uh, obviously, telephone and uh, uh, all of the networking is essential business. I mean, if we didn't have people in the data centers, those are the first responders that without those first responders, we have no first responders anywhere. Yeah. And I mean, the whole supply chain shuts down. They never shut down construction anywhere because you've got to build things and, and keep, keep that going or people don't have houses or whatever. So... Essential businesses is something that, um, you know, if you're going to make it on entertainment, I got a son who's Maverick who's on the PGA Tour. He found out that all of a sudden, you know, golf wasn't essential. Now he's doing just fine and, and all the rest of it. And he was very supportive of, of what was going on. But, it, you know, it, that's, that's the big analysis that people are doing at the macro level around the world. But it 
did it did change the speed at which we migrate to it all goes back to the network as the computer i mean it, it all goes back to cloud based um and then as we move into autonomous and ai and all these other things i do believe there will be a huge dislocation from you know manually operated environments and uh retail and a lot of the other things that are changing but i think there will be an enormous growth in headcount on a couple of areas uh, and i think that's worth noting and thinking about or ch even challenge me i don't i mean i'm i'm not a i'm not a financial guru but i think there will be an enormous amount of headcount and energy going into security both physical you know paul blart mall cop all the way up to major SWAT teams, uh, and I think defunding police is not going to happen. I think we're going to fund more for physical security, and uh, and then there's virtual security. So there'll be um, anybody who wants to get a degree. Back in my day with the graduate, it was plastics, and literally my first job out of college was in the plastics division of Rockwell International Automotive. But now it's virtual security, cyber security, you have a job in you have a degree in cybersecurity. You got you got job security for the next forty years, and then the the next place is obviously in healthcare. Everything from, you know, in home care for my ninety two year old mom, all the way through to bio and you know immunological research and uh, monoclonal whatevers. And, um, uh, Biorobotics. I mean, there's going to be so much to keep us healthy because that's where so much money is going to be spent. So there is not going to be an unemployment issue. It's just going to be a redeployment issue that everybody faces. And then I guess the last piece that makes me very nervous about this global pandemic is um, there's a lot of people in developing countries that when the United States stops uh, their GDP, uh, the cost in lives and in poverty rates and famine and all the rest of it around the world is going to be the shock that nobody here knows about or cares about. And it's going to be the shock that uh, will shock us when we finally see the aftermath of what's going on. And I think we've got to rev the engine up as fast as we can because fundamentally, you know, our economy is such an engine for success and, and uh, growth in all of these other uh, places around the world that uh, when we when we catch and we're not we're catching more than pneumonia here with the huge shutdown that we have that the impacts are going to be quite sad. Yeah, no, they they definitely are. are I mean, they're huge already. Um, um, without some sort of return to uh, uh, stable long longer term economic growth, there is going to be repercussions in many of the industries that we talk to on, on thinking caps. That are gonna gonna last for a very very long uh, time. Now, just just going back to um, kind of the, the the how you dealt with the dot com crash. Was there something from an industry perspective that you know we we've heard from folks that are going through COVID nineteen now that some industries there's quite a lot of solidarity. They're all going through it together, um, and people have drawn on on that. When the dot com crashed, was it was there solidarity across the the industry was their support or was it kind of daggers at dawn to try and win competitive advantage for when they, they came out the other side of the uh, the bubble uh, crashing? I would say it's sun because we 
benefited so much from the hoarding and the pan, you know, there was panic. What if I run out of computer and, and my, everybody, I don't know if you probably don't remember but when eBay was growing really fast, Meg Whitman was the CEO and she called me one day and said, the computers are down, I need more, blah, blah. And I literally, they had CNN helicopters flying over and I, I went into her building with, you know, my sport coat pulled over my head, you know, just trying to sneak in there because it was, it was like, CNN headline news that eBay couldn't keep up with the Beanie Baby trades. And so nobody wanted that. Everybody was worried about that. They were worried about Y2K. They were worried about all of this stuff. And so there was there was a huge hordemic going on at that time. And so we went way up. When it came out, we were impacted so greatly. And in fact, I, I would argue that I, I just wish we had monitored our channel much more aggressively. We hadn't pushed to go, and we had kept the expectations lower from the street because our morale got super high, and then boom, and that made it so much harder. And I think, I think it was actually a, a very devastating. And I don't think we ever fully recovered from the shock of that up and then down. So when we were coming down, it was I was just focused on trying to regain operational control of the organization, get us out of the flat spin we were in and uh, do that before we ran out of cash. And, uh, you know, eventually we got it turned around. We're making money and 7.4 billion in cash and we're generating cash. So we did, we were able to go do that, but I didn't care what was going on around the rest of the world. I knew we had screwed up by letting the company just hire too many people, sign too many leases and stuff the channel. And stuffing the chain. If you, if your business does uh, work through the channel, you have to be very, very careful. So, like food suppliers had a lot of channel going through the restaurant channel, and all of a sudden, it switched from that to grocery stores and through Amazon and cot and and the Costco, and it wasn't going. It, it was a huge disruption, and why? why things uh, were, were so hard to deal with because all of a sudden the wholesale channel went away and the retail channel was the only way you got food or toilet paper or whatever. I mean, there was toilet paper. It was just literally, or all of the retail and uh, businesses had it stuck in their ware warehouse rooms and they were still getting shipments because they were, they were scheduled because they knew how much toilet paper was going to be used. And all of a sudden it just piled up there and people were hoarding it at home. I mean, it's the channel disruption that, that that caused us and that's what we needed to focus on aggressively we also had we also had quality issues so there were some some issues when you grow that fast you know quality and customer sat tends to get a little out of whack and then they remember that and then they punish you even more on the way down I actually uh, taught English um, for for a year in a, a very remote Nepalese village that had no running water or or electricity, and um, they certainly didn't have any toilet uh, paper, so it wasn't essential services there. That's for sure. You might need to cut that too. You, you, you might ask. You might just do a little survey here in North America on whether that's an essential or not. <laughs> and wipes, and you know, hand sanitizer, and all. I mean, it's just. Yeah, it'll be an interesting view looking at different countries in terms of what they class as essential products. Well, here, here's 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 another issue without you asking that I'll tell you that makes it really hard to be in the pinata right now. 
and what marketeers and and uh, inventory managers is the infodemic about everything. And if you just look at what WHO, CDC, Dr. Fauci, the um, absolute inconsistency in their recommendation, and you know my and and if you look at the 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 let's call it hypocrisy for for the nicest word of you know what's allowed and what's not allowed uh, and uh, which governments and which locales decide what's acceptable behavior or allowed behavior, all the rest of it, it becomes absolutely a nightmare for a CEO or any leader in an organization to try and put a reasonable plan together that makes sense. And I guess my, my advice is you can't listen to the media anymore other than to hear where they might be stampeding the, the masses uh, and try and make sure you're you're um, covered either from an image perspective or and I, I see massive massive efforts to have the right image. Uh, but right now, if you try to have an image, you're going to piss off half of your your customer base. And so I think that is that's just that's chasing your tail or spiting your face or or just deciding that I'm I'm going to go after half the market and. You know, I'm not going to go after those folks. I'm going to try and win over here with these folks, which I think is a, a marketing decision some companies are making is that we just have a divided world. Um, and But, you know, is, is should you wear a mask or should you not? Is it six feet or is it three feet or is it um, inside or versus outside? I mean, there's, there's so many... Uh, decisions to make, and then there's a legal uncertainty that I don't envy anybody having. Like, I got COVID because my company did this, and the legal liabilities of that are just absolutely stunning. And, um, you know, I, I there's too many lawyers in Congress to vote to make lawyers less uh, important in this process, and, you know, there aren't enough business folks uh, in their driving the, the right kinds of decisions there. So this is a this is a unique moment in time. I mean, in the dot-com bubble, the only thing you had was a bunch of AGs trying to make a name for themselves, making people who sold stock just before the crash do the perp walk and, and say they used insider trading, which, you know, somebody's going to sell stock just before the crash, and you can throw them in jail just because you want to blame somebody for, you know, caught, what did they cause the crash? I, it, it's, it's, um, there, there's a lot of scapegoating going on at all times. And, and that's, that's a, that's a tough world. It's way harder when the, the pandemic hits every business at some point, somehow, some way. So Scott, I've got a, 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 a final question for you, which I think is uh, an interesting one because, um, particularly in a company like Sun that was, uh, you know, innovation was, was, a, was a core part of its, of its business model. When you're faced with, as many CXOs are today with what's going on with COVID-19 and the lockdown, when you're faced with having to make significant cost reductions, as many of these companies have done, in a short period of time, or are continuing to, to make them the longer that the economy doesn't fully open up, what, what, how do you approach decisions um, based around kind of preservation of budget for innovation or for marketing when, you know, 
some things are in free fall and really balancing the books is such a big uh, requirement in order to keep, uh, you know, to, to survive. How do, you, how do you balance those decisions? Well, so you can always be prepared by doing what I think the CEO or the leader of an organization needs to do every day. And that is intelligently choose your make buy decisions uh, or, or decide on your make buy decisions. And I always thought the biggest role of a CEO is what are you going to make versus what are you going to buy? What are you going to engineer and create as your secret sauce versus what do you subcontract? And we had, when we were growing, we had cafeterias and we'd hire cooks and people to clean and, and we, we hired janitorial. And all of a sudden we said, you know what? No customers ever come in and wanted to buy a computer and said, who's cooking your burgers? You know, who's, who's guarding the shack out front and that sort of thing. And so we, it's just as hard to manage like a Bill Joyer and Andy Bechtelstein, our top scientists, computer scientists, as it is to hire a security and manage a security guard. Both are just as likely to give you a lawsuit or cause you a problem or to take up time and say, I need this, I need that or whatever. And so we tried over time, I tried to get as much of the people we hired to be people that could answer a question that would happen in the visit center when a customer would come in and they say, well, tell me about the pipeline of the next microprocessor or who's going to service this thing. How do I get an upgrade done? You know, those people who could answer those questions and take care of the customer's problem, who I wanted to hire. And if they didn't, and then and I told all the employees, listen, if you don't have a direct line in your business to making the customer happy, or very, very close to direct line, you're probably ready for an outsourcing. And by the way, the cook did, we, we outsourced the Guggenheimers who did our cafeteria. The cook had a chance of becoming the CEO at Guggenheimers. He never had a chance of becoming the CEO at Sun Microsystem. So you're providing a better, it's just a better and more organized way to go around your company. So then when you got a downsize, you basically cut back on purchase orders which is a way more effective and less damaging to your company. And you can trim back by just cutting back on the stuff that you were buying uh, for the most part. That still didn't mean you didn't get the opportunity to address the bottom 10% that you probably should have or the, the, the bloat in the verticality of your org chart or other things like that. Uh, so it gives you, the downturn gives you an excuse to do what you, you know, most people hire management consultants because they know what to do. They don't want to have, they don't have the managerial courage to go do it. So they bring in a management consultant who says, do what you ought to go do. And then they say, oh, the consultant told me to do it. But, you know, the, the downturn gives you the, uh, the excuse to have the managerial courage that you need. Fascinating wow. insights there. Fascinating insights, Scott. And I know the, the listeners will be, uh, will be interested to hear your perspective, you know, managing through what was an extremely trying time for some with the dot-com uh, boom and, and crash. Before we go, though, um, give us a, you know, last time you were on here, you, met, you talked about Kariki. Give us, a, give us an update in terms of kind of uh, how things are going Kariki, uh, what you're up to, and, uh, you know, how, how the, the business model is evolving. Yeah, so we think we're launching uh, two of the most important products since the Java uh, runtime, uh, Java Virtual Machine, and the Java Studio were developed. And we're creating Kariki Studio and Kariki Go. We're launching them this week. They're free, open source and available to anybody for download, any school, any content creator, any trade organization, any church, or any business. 
here's our, our, our government organization. What does the product do? It is a purpose-built, Tricky Studio is a purpose-built, uh, think of it as a Time Warner or, you know, a Netflix uh, studio in, a, in software to create active learning experiences. What's going on right now? Kids can't go to school. People can't go to work. How do you train them? How do you educate them? How do you reskill them? How do you even tell them how to work in a COVID uh, reality world? How do you uh, retrain them to because of all the dislocations? You can't. You can't bring them in and bring them into a classroom. And in fact, you know, they're still trying to figure out if they're going to even open up schools in the fall. The content we have is horrible. It's PDFs, shaky YouTube videos. It's just there's it's just non-existent it is and you think about how, how much money do we spend billions and billions creating unbelievable netflix bingeable stuff uh fortnite dopamine addictive gaming and how much do we spend on curriculum and and, and e-curriculum it's horrible i, I was talking to a 14 year old uh, down the street i said how, how's school going he goes Eh, it's pretty easy. I go, how much do you, how, how hard do you work? Go, less than an hour of online content. And then the rest of the day, he's getting in trouble. And it, it, and by the way, the stuff is horrible. It's, my boys are graduating from Stanford and CS degree. They're taking Stanford CS in a correspondence school. It's the teacher does the video. Instead of doing the class twice, she does the video once and puts it on the net. Some total of their computer science training is video and I'm paying 70 grand a year for that. It's, it's like unbelievable. So studio is Curricky studio is a free and open source development environment that allows you to take all of your static and content and add in uh, scope and sequence, uh, put in quizzes, put in subtitles, put in, we have 40 plus activations that allow you to activate this into something that's interesting in dopamine addictive, my hallucinate, and then Curriki Go is the runtime like the Java Virtual Machine that allows it to export into any learning management system and run on any platform, any cloud, any server. So you've got, but it's free and open because there's no money in education. But every company needs to educate their people. Every school needs to do this. Every teacher can now do it without any programming knowledge. My fantasy, my hallucination is Elon Musk decides he wants to build an unbelievably cool $20 million production of games of electricity, 15 part, 30 minute mini series with real time scoring, AR, VR, uh, chatbot, machine learning, uh, and, and AI built into it, uh, uh, assessment architectures, and it all loads into your own personal active achievement portfolio that is your own private, uh, secure, uh, encrypted transcript that is yours from the time you're three to 300 doing all of your lifelong learning. And we have Dow Chemical do games of chemistry. And I want it to be as wonderful. I admit it during the lockdown, I watched Tiger King. The whole thing. <laughs> I, binged on. I will, I admit it. I will never get those hours back. Why do we have such great production on such garbage? And we have such horrible, production 
on something as critical as calculus or modern European history or music or learning a new language or whatever. So my goal and hope is that with this free open source tool, we can create a common architecture and it, it the market tips and all content creators use this free and open source technology and we spend billions of dollars creating remote learning. And then we can turn the classroom into a place where we do all the community, community, community stuff like athletics, performing arts, visual arts, debate club, science fairs, robot clubs, uh, recess and lunch. All of those things are where the kids get socialized and everybody gets the best teaching curriculum and knowledge. Uh, and, and, and the parents come in and say, Mary, step away from the computer. And Mary says, no, I got three more episodes. I'm binging on, I'm not going to sleep. This is, I gotta know how this ends. And by the way, I gotta get, I, I wanna put this in my achievement portfolio because I'm trying to get into Stanford. You know, that's that's what I wanna see and what we're trying to do. It's all.org. Uh, anybody wants to donate, go to www.curriki.org. We need content, we need uh technology donated we need financial resources to go make this happen i think we can get the whole world to create really great learning and with education everything will be better yep totally agree there and scott you just do not stop man solving the world's problems here curriculum.org we got it up on the screen here for everyone and look our viewers please take a look at it i'm on it right now there's some great integrations you you have to know somebody or your organization has to be able to help here in some way. So, so check that out. This is a lot of food for thought in this hour with Scott. Gosh, we got to have Scott back every couple of weeks, Richard. Yeah, we do. Well, Scott, um, thank you very much. Appreciate your, your time. And uh, definitely, I'd love to have you back in uh, uh, a little while. We'll see how, how the economy is faring. Thanks, Evan. I'll get a haircut by then. I, I <laughs>